Well, Ashbel Green might not be a name that you're familiar with. Uh, he was a young man when the American Revolution broke out, and he served in the Revolutionary Army. At this point in his life, he was not a Christian, uh, but he was converted uh, sometime in his, his early adulthood. He then went on to become a Presbyterian minister and was a well-known Presbyterian minister in Philadelphia. Uh, he was at one time a chaplain for the U.S. House of Rep Representatives. And eventually he would become the president of Princeton University. He's a fascinating man uh, in his own right. And um, there, there, there's much fascinating you can read about him. I know he's not uh, a well-known name, perhaps, these days. Uh, but he was a very godly man. He was a gifted preacher. And he was a gifted scholar. He once wrote to his son, uh, later in life, reflecting on his life. And he commented to his son about how it had been his intense desire as a young man to go to Yale University and to study at Yale University. Uh, in these days, we, we tend to forget this, but the, the Ivy League universities, Yale and Harvard and Princeton, those were where many men went to study to become pastors. And they, they taught theology still in those days, although at this point in time, Yale University sadly was beginning to drift from its faithful beginnings. But uh, Ashbel Green, he, he, had, he had no desire stronger than to go into study at Yale University. He sent off his letter to Yale to apply, and mysteriously his letter was mislaid at the postal office. And it sat on someone's desk for six weeks, and he missed the deadline to be accepted into Yale. And so, unknown to him, he received no response back from Yale University. And he decided instead, because he heard nothing back, to go to Princeton University. And because he decided to go to Princeton, his entire life was transformed. Uh, he would go on, as I said, to become the president of Princeton University and to become equipped at a, at a school that was still faithfully teaching God's word and prepared him to become a faithful minister who would preach the gospel throughout his life. Little did he know that his plans were not God's plans. And in this letter to his son, uh, he, he says this. He, he says, The overruling providence of God often assigns us our allotment in this world, not only without our contrivance, and, and there he's using an older word, our planning or our plans. So uh, God assigns us our allotment in this world, not only without our planning, but in opposition to it, and the disappointment of our fondest wishes. I thought that was such a wonderful way to think about God's ways in this world, is that it is so often the case that what we desire most in this world, what we think is, is most important for us, is not God's will for us. What we want more than anything in the world and this is not uh, even sinful things often. But what we desire, maybe the job that we desire, the, the town that we desire to move to, the college we desire to go to, um, any of those things that we most set our heart on, 
And then God disappoints our, our wishes. He, he sends us elsewhere. He has another plan for us. And, and that can be difficult. And yet, time after time, again, that's exactly what happens. And, and God does that because he loves us. He does that out of his, his loving kindness and his perfect wisdom. Because God knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly where we need to be, when we need to be there. He does all things well for the benefit of his children. God never makes mistakes. And those very things that we set our heart on so often are not what we need. They're not what's best for our spiritual well-being. They're not what's best for the well-being of others, uh, perhaps that we would be a blessing to others because of where we've been placed by God. If you were writing the story of your own life ahead of time, would you place cancer in that story? Would you place the death of a child or a spouse? Would you place the loss of your job? Would you place the the loss of your house Would you place any of of the greatest trials that you have endured in in your own life, would you have placed those into your story if you were writing that story ahead of time? I think most of us would say no. How would we write our own story? We would write our story where we live where we want to live. And we would write our story where we've gone to the college that we want to go to. We'd write our story where we have the dream job, and we have everything going perfectly for ourselves. And yet, those are not the things we need most. Our loving Heavenly Father knows perfectly what we need to make us more like Christ, to give us hope in our Savior Jesus Christ, to fill us with unshakable hope for this life and for the next God writes our story, as Pastor Green said, often to the disappointment of our fondest wishes, precisely so that we will place our hope and our fondest wishes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we will find our hope in Him, because that is the only unshakable hope for this life. It's the only real hope, and it's it's certainly the only hope for eternal life. So this morning, that's my my sermon to you. In Christ, we have unshakable hope for this life and for the next. But it's a hope that comes to us in the midst of many difficulties and many trials. And those difficulties and those trials are necessary for us. They're necessary for our own spiritual well-being. God knows what we need, and he gives us exactly what we need. He places us exactly where we need to be so that we will have that unshakable hope. I want to look at at this text with you this morning under three main headings, and it's this. The foundation of our hope, the pathway of our hope, and then the outcome of our hope. If we have this unshakable hope in Christ, what is the foundation of that hope? What is the path we must walk 
to, to be strengthened in that hope, to find that hope? And then what is the outcome of our hope? We've set our hope on Christ, and what is the outcome of that? So let's start then with, with the first point, the foundation of our hope. And this is simple. The foundation of our hope is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 1. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we live in a very anxious age. People are full of anxiety. I don't really think that we live in an age where things are any more difficult than they've ever been. But I do think that anxiety seems to be uh, more rampant than it's ever been, more all-pervasive than it's ever been. If you go to the, the gurus of our culture, Oprah Winfrey or whoever it is, they're going to constantly be telling you, you know, your problem is, is anxiety, and here's the solution. I've figured it out. Here's how you can be free from anxiety. And when you hear this word peace, that might be the first thing that pops into your mind is, oh, this is how I can be free from all my, anx my anxiety in life. All these things that are, that are causing me to constantly be anxious and, and to be snapping at people because I'm, I'm feeling all this stress and tension. You know, as we were driving here this morning, I saw a sign that said, Jesus is the answer. And what I wondered when I saw that sign was, well, what is the question? Uh, yes, Jesus is the answer. But do people know the question to ask? I think a lot of people in our culture, the question they might ask is, how can I be free from all these anxieties? How, how can I have my best life now? And the world's telling us, here, we, we can tell you how to be free from anxiety. Just take this medicine and you'll, you'll be free from anxiety. Uh, just uh, follow this program, you'll be free from anxiety. But Paul is not talking about that when he talks about peace here. What Paul is getting at is the answer to a very different question. How can I, a sinner, be right with a holy God? How can I stand before an all-righteous God knowing that I'm sinful, that I've fallen short of what he requires? That's the question. Jesus is the answer to that question because only in the Lord Jesus Christ can you find peace with God. And how do we find peace with God? Well, Paul tells us we have been justified by faith. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been declared before the divine judge of all the earth to be right before him. Despite the fact that you're a sinner. That's what justification is. Is that the judge of the, whole, of the universe, the completely holy and righteous God, who demands perfect righteousness of every creature he's made, that that judge pronounces sentence in your favor, because the Lord Jesus Christ himself was perfectly righteous in your place. He is the substitute for your sins. He's the substitute for you before God. And because of that, God pronounces in your favor. You're righteous in his sight. And because you are righteous in God's sight, you have peace with God. Peace with God is not a feeling. Peace with God is not something 
that we should think of just comes and goes. Now, our, our understanding of our peace with God does ebb and flow. Right? Some days we, we might not feel that quite as strongly as we do others. Some days we've, we, we realize we've, we've given over ourselves over to sin. We've turned to sin and uh, we feel a distance between ourselves and God. Yet that's our feeling. At those moments, if you're truly in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to have those times where you, where you feel further from the Lord. But what Paul is talking about here is something that is objective. You have peace with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that you will feel that you're at peace, but you are at peace with him through Christ. It's finished. It's objective. There's nothing that you can do to make that peace be more or less. It just simply is. There's so many amazing images of salvation in, in the scriptures. Justification is one of those. In justification, we're talking about the courtroom. God is a just judge and he's pronounced sentence in our favor in Christ. All because of Christ and not of ourselves all by, by faith and not by our own good works. But that's not the only image of salvation that we see in the Bible. Peace is another one. And that takes us into the realm of relationship. It, it, when we talk about peace, we're talking about a God who was once our enemy, who was once alienated from us, who was once at enmity with us, Rightly so. God could be nothing but an enemy of those who are sinners, who have rebelled against him. That is the only possible thing that a righteous God could be. If God was at peace with those who had rebelled against him and who had turned away from his law and broken it day after day, who are guilty in their sinful natures, if God was at peace with them, then God would not be a righteous God. It would mean that God simply looks away turns a blind eye to sin. God doesn't care about your sin. You're a sinner, but he's going to accept you anyway. Right? If that were the case, God would cease to be a holy God. God would, would, would be a God who doesn't care about sin. He would not be a righteous God. And so that's what's so wonderful about this language of being at peace with God. Is that we're talking about a holy and righteous God who has gone from being our enemy... To being our friend. And it's all through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you are in him. If you are in him. If by faith. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are in him. And you have peace with God. God is now your friend. God now. As the prophet Zephaniah says. Is the Lord your God in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. It's amazing. God does not simply tolerate us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? He delights in you in Christ. He rejoices over you with gladness. He exults over you with loud singing. I wonder if you've ever felt this way about salvation. You think, well, I understand that I'm, I'm in the right with God now. You know, that's justification. I've been declared to be in the right with God. 
So God will tolerate me now. Now, He's not going to count my sins against me. Those sins have been placed upon Christ. He's paid the penalty. So God, he'll, 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 He'll accept me and He'll tolerate me now. But that's not the fullness of our salvation in Christ. God does not simply tolerate His children. We're at peace with Him. The enmity has been turned away. God rejoices over His children. With gladness. He exalts over you with loud singing. God delights in his children. He's at peace with us. What an amazing reality. That we could have the God of all the universe. Who rejoices over us. Who delights in us. This is the grace that Paul speaks about here. In verse 2. This grace that we've obtained by faith. That we've been brought into. This grace in which we stand. This is the grace for the Christian life. To come back to this truth. Over and over and over. And this is not even the fullness of our salvation. There's so many things that aren't even mentioned here. Adoption. Being brought into God's family. Being his children by faith. But if we cannot come back to this truth. Over and over. That God delights in us in Christ. That he rejoices over us. Then we're not going to find the grace to stand. For the Christian life. That's the grace that we need. Day after day after day. To return to this truth. The real view of God. Towards his children. So that brothers and sisters. That is the foundation. Of our hope. The foundation of our hope for this life. And for the next. Is that we are at peace. With God. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith. There is no other hope that will sustain us in this world. Nothing else in this world can give you that hope. But Paul is not finished here. He also, and this is our second point, he also shows us the pathway of hope. Here I want to focus on verses 2 to 4. The pathway to hope. So we've been brought in by faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word for rejoicing, we rejoice, is actually we boast in hope in the glory of God. We boast in in hope in the glory of God. Why does Paul say that we boast in hope? Well, he's going to to continue in this text uh, when he says that This hope will not put us to shame. That's the connection here, is is boasting. Uh, Throughout Paul's letters, he talks about um, either uh, boasting or being shamed. That's a common theme for Paul, is boasting or being shamed. The world boasts in the things of the world. The, The world boasts in power. The world boasts in money. The world boasts in influence. And so Christians early on, they had none of those things. And, and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that seemed shameful to the world. And so the world mocked them. The world despised them. The world reviled them. Uh, we see that today. Christians are still mocked. They're still reviled. They're still uh, treated as, as the scum of the earth. Um, said that they're foolish. That, that we are... Uh, Maybe even bigots for the things that we believe. And so the world tries to shame us for believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So one of the glorious hopes of of the gospel is that we have a sure boast, that we won't be put to shame, that we have this boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's why Paul says here that we boast in hope. We have a real boast. It's not in the things of the world. It's not in money. It's not in power. It's not in influence. It's not in what the world thinks about us. That's not what we boast in. We boast in hope. We boast in this sure and absolute hope. We boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. We boast in in, in the Savior who gave himself for our sins. The Savior who has made it such that we are through him at peace with God. To have this God who delights in us in Christ. That's what we boast in. And nothing else. Well, I misspoke. We actually boast in one other thing, Paul says. Not just in the hope of the glory of God, but more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Now, I I would suggest that on the surface, when you hear this, we we boast in hope, that might seem easy. It's not as easy as it seems to to place all of your hope in this life in Christ and to not place it in anything else, not to place it in your bank account, not to place it in your job stability, not to place it in to getting into the best college, uh, not to place it in in, in the security of the neighborhood in which you live or the, the, the nation's Uh, economic well-being or any of those things. It's actually harder to place our hope in Christ and to boast in him than we might think. But at least on the surface, it might think, okay, boasting in Christ, that's, that's what I want. But boasting or rejoicing in our sufferings, who would do that? Who would rejoice or boast in suffering? Why? Why would we do that? We, we might think, Suffering, it's inevitable. It happens to all of us. And so, obviously, we're going to have to endure suffering. We get sick. We get diseases. uh, We we lose our jobs. uh, We have any number of trials and difficulties that come into our lives. And so, of course, we have to endure that as Christians. But that's not what Paul says, is it? He says we, we rejoice in suffering. We boast in suffering. You might think, is Paul entirely right in the head here? Why would someone do that? Why would someone rejoice in all of those horrible things that happen to them? Well, Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't say that we rejoice in suffering for its own sake. He doesn't say that we love suffering or that we should love suffering. We're, we're not uh, those kinds of people that find some sort of delight in, in all the horrible things that happen to us, uh, just for their own sake. No, if, if he stopped there, I think this would be a very miserable thing to say. But he doesn't stop there. He says that we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know what those sufferings produce in our lives. If those sufferings are received in faith, And if those sufferings are responded to in faith, then those sufferings produce 
much fruit. Those sufferings produce endurance, and then endurance produces character, and then character produces hope. Suffering produces endurance. When we suffer, now, it's extremely important that we, we don't misunderstand what Paul's saying here and think that this is an automatic process. Right? When you suffer, you have two ways that you can go. You have the path of bitterness and anger towards God, and you have the path of faith, which is receiving those sufferings in faith and responding in faith. This is not inevitable. We can go one of those two paths, the path of bitterness or the path of faith when suffering comes into our life. And suffering will come into our lives. I know that in, in many different ways that all of you have and are going through large and small trials. And when these come our way, if we respond in faith, we know that our God delights in us. We know that our God loves us in Christ. And we know that he would never do anything to harm us, ultimately harm us. That every single thing that God does, everything that he places into our lives is for our good. When we know that, then we know that he's going to use this suffering, as Paul says, for our good to produce endurance. Endurance is steadfastness. Uh, when the, the, the first blow of wind uh, strikes us, uh, we're often knocked off course slightly. You know, when the, when the trials come into our life early in the Christian life, it's, it's more difficult for us when we've just been a Christian for, for a short period of time. Maybe when we're younger. You know, for those of you who are kids uh, who are younger, maybe you haven't experienced quite as many uh, trials in your life. Maybe you have, but, but maybe some of you haven't. And you, you know, you're still under the protection of your parents, and they can shelter you from many things. And it's going to get harder as you go out into the world. Uh, for those of us who, have, who have, are older, who've been Christians for longer, you know, we've gone through various trials. And if we respond in faith, God uses those trials to make us more steadfast. You respond in faith, you become stronger. And when the wind blows against the trees, it either knocks them down or it makes them more able to withstand the wind. Uh, the, the, the trials of this life, only when we respond in faith, will make us able to the next time that a trial comes into our life, respond again with that much more trust in the Lord. You've seen that the Lord was with you in trials. You've seen that he loved you. You've seen that he was good, that he even brought good out of that trial. Even if you can only see that in a small way, you see that and you know that he's going to do the same in the future. And you've grown in your, your steadfastness. You've grown in your endurance. And so the next time a trial comes into your life, you're more able to take that from the loving hand of God. That's why, uh, that's one of the reasons why God places these trials in our lives is to make us stronger. To make us able to fix our hope on Christ all the more. You know, and not on our health. Not on our bank account, not on anything in this world, but to place it in Christ and to be stronger for the next trial that comes into our life. Because our hope isn't in things that are passing away. Our hope isn't in the, the, the things of this world that will fail us every time. And if we grow in this way, this endurance, the steadfastness, it will produce character. And character there is, is a word for 
um, being unmovable. You know, it's tested character. It's like the Apostle Peter describes that process, and James, the Apostle James as well, where gold is melted down, and then the impurities on the top of the gold, they're skimmed off, and then the gold reforms, and it's more pure. But that's what God does with trials that he places in our lives. He uses those trials to skim off the impurities, to, to show us those places in our lives where we still have doubts about his love, where we still have sin in our life. There's sins that we maybe haven't really become awakened to in our lives. We've not fully dealt with them. We've uh, begun to play games with God and, and think that we can just be at peace and just play with sin and, and we can keep these sins in our lives and, and not repent of those sins. And we've sort of made peace with sin. And we think it's okay. God will place trials in your life, brothers and sisters. He will place them in your life in order to purify you, to remove that sin. If you respond in faith, repenting, when you see that sin that's brought to light because of that trial that you're facing, you know, allow those trials to work their good work in your life. Allow God to work his good work in your life. To show you your sin. To show you your need for repentance. To show you your need more and more of your Savior. And when those sins then are skimmed off and you're reformed, you have that tested character, that pure character, you'll see that that was what God was doing by placing trials in your life. And then finally, once you've been more and more reformed into the image of God through these trials, the outcome of this is hope. Hope that will not put us to shame The things of this world will always fail us. No matter what they are. The, the good things of this world. The sinful things of this world. They will always fail us. But if this process has been at work in our lives. And we've become more and more refined. Into the image of Christ. Through these trials. Because of God's love. Then we will find. That we have a stronger hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ. Than we do. In the things of this world. We will find that we have a stronger hope. In Christ than we once did. That we see him as our all in all. And that's my last point. The outcome of our hope. Verse 5. Hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not put us to shame. Everything else in this world will. If you set your hope on it. It will fail you. It will put you to shame. It will put you to shame in this way. Ultimately, if, you, if you've not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've placed your hope in the things of this world, on the last day, you will find that you have nothing. Everything that you placed your hope in, swept away. Because the only solid hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be put to shame in that sense because you never had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you placed your hope in, in the world. But if your hope is in Christ, you'll find that everything that you desired and more has been preserved for you. Because the, the eternal riches of salvation in Christ are yours. But one commentator says this about this verse. He says that Christians need not fear that the judgment will put them to shame. In the sense that the foundation on which they have built their lives and their hope for eternal blessing should prove inadequate. 
thought it was such a great way to put that. The, the foundation on which we have built our entire lives and all of our hope, if we trust in Christ and we find our hope to be more and more in Him, we have staked everything on the Savior. All of our hope in Him. More and more. And then we will find on that last day that the hope that we have placed in Him will not prove inadequate. We will not be put to shame on that day. We will not be seen to be fools as we are seen to be fools in this world. Because our hope was true. Our hope was in Christ. And all the world who did not place their faith in Jesus Christ, all the world that placed their hope in any other place, they will find to their eternal shame that the foundation on which they built their lives, the foundation in which they placed their hope, is, is taken away, that it was quicksand, that it just crumbles under their feet on that last day. But brothers and sisters, if your hope is in Christ, it is and a hope that cannot fail you, that cannot put you to shame. I want to leave you this morning with a question. How are you responding to the trials in your life? How are you responding to sickness? How are you responding to difficulties in your relationships? How are you responding to your job and your job situation, difficulties at work? How are you responding to maybe even anxieties about the, the state of our, our country? All of these different things. Uh, how are you responding to the trials that you're facing? Because we've seen that God has placed these trials in our lives for our good. He's placed these trials in our lives because he loves us. Because he delights in us. Because he is seeking to make it such that our hope is in Christ and nowhere else. In nothing that could actually fail us or ultimately fail us. How are you responding to these difficult trials that you're facing? There are two responses that I mentioned. And we could see this actually very clearly in the life of Job. Are you Job's wife? Who said curse God and die to Job when Job lost nearly everything in this life? The path of, of bitterness and unbelief? Or are you Job who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray.